This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Scott Radley. I'm sitting in for Rick Zamperin. Today, we are talking about the encampment debate that was long, long, long at Hamilton City Council on Wednesday. We'll be talking about that with Matt Francis. Uh, We've got the WestJet looming strike on the agenda today as well as Bill C-48, the bail system adjustment that is being proposed. We're going to be talking about breweries in this area and the challenges they are facing. There are challenges. Our national debt, how much money are we paying every year to service the national debt? We'll get into that. And Michael Andlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, we are told he is the favorite now to buy the Ottawa Senators. That and many other things. Coming up. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday at Hamilton City Council, there was a long, I mean a long with about six or seven O's in the word long, a long meeting about what to do with encampments in the city. And by the end of it, well not even by the end, as you were listening to it, if you were, As you were listening to it, it became abundantly clear that the gap between the two sides that seem to exist on council is very, very, very far apart. There are those who would suggest it seems live and let live and let the people in encampments do what they want because that's humane. And there's others who clearly are saying, no, we need enforcement. We need to crack down. We need to make sure they're not in parks and other places near everyone's house. The answer clearly is not simple. Yesterday, as a result, um, where we got was, let's send it back for more consultation. Matt Francis is the counselor for Ward 5. He was involved in those discussions yesterday. He joins us now. Matt, how are you this morning? I'm a little bit tired from yesterday's long uh, (laughs) meeting. It's seven hours just on this one topic. Um, I mean, it's an important topic, but yes, I'm very tired, but, uh, good, doing good. Scott. Not, not surprising though, where it was it, you didn't expect this to move quickly, a topic of this, that this has, that generates this much interest and passion and feeling and response from the community. Uh, absolutely. We anticipated, I, well, I certainly anticipated it being this long. Um, I, and, and like you said, um, you know, we, we might not all agree on council, but one thing is for sure. We do all agree uh, on the fact that this is a, a problem. Um, and we have to preface this by saying we all have love in our hearts for people experiencing homelessness. So uh, we might not agree on the, on the solution, but we definitely agree that we love all these homeless people and we want to see a better outcome for them. Okay. And, and I agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, it's one of the things that often gets mentioned that, you know, if you, if you have, if you want to enforce or whatever, that somehow you're not compassionate. I, I, I reject that, but I think it's different ways of doing things. But nonetheless, you sat there, you heard, uh, you were on the side that was in favor of enforcement, but you also heard the other side. As I said off the top, there is a massive chasm between those two ex- extremes or those two positions, maybe is a better word. How do you possibly, how is council possibly going to find common ground when you are so far apart? Well, you know, there's a couple things here. It, like you said, there's, there's a huge divide. Um, I'm on the side of taking the enforcement approach. Unfortunately, that's not what my colleagues have decided this term of council. We debated this earlier in the term. Uh, they wanted a housing first approach. I disagree. I think we should have a, a more inf- uh, enforcement based approach. And, and truth be told, I think it is beyond inappropriate to allow encampments in our parks, near our children's playgrounds and in our ravines. It's, it's inappropriate. The people of Hamilton uh, do not want this. 
Um, so I'm not in favor of what came forward uh, with this uh, staff presentation and, and allowing these uh, to exist in parks. Um, but you know what? I, I, I also had a solution yesterday with, with um, uh, a motion that I brought forward where, uh, you know, the staff's going to report back and determine a feasibility and potential liability of a registry for advocates, members of councils, and residents to voluntarily add their name to host a person experiencing homelessness as identified by housing support staff. So that was that was something that, you know, I thought might be and I'm not suggesting this is going to solve homelessness. That's not my suggestion. It's one more tool in our toolkit that we can use to provide another additional layer of, of, of service and, and to try to help chip away at this problem because, you know, we recognize that it is a big problem. So so you're suggesting what that somebody who is an advocate for the homeless uh, could say, sign me up. I will take someone with their tent in my backyard and they can live there. Is that the idea? Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's the municipality of Oshawa actually had a, a similar program to this where they championed community-led programs like Spirit and Service, that's what they called it, uh, which modeled after re- refugee sponsorship program, providing an opportunity for residents to contribute to solution building. And it's an opportunity to put words in action. And if the noise is anything, uh, is any indication, there should be people lined up for this. I mean, um, I'm hearing a lot of people with uh, with some ideas, but why not bridge that gap? Why, why can't we... Uh, go out there, have this uh, service that we can work together with the community to kind of bridge those two together. Do you do you think, though, that this idea would gain any kind of traction, or do you think people are going to look at this and say, this is just a cynical way for someone who wants to go the enforcement route to make the people who talk about the compassionate or the human rights way look bad because they're not going to sign up for this? You know what? It's just it's an opportunity for advocates, whether politicians or people in the community that are passionate about this issue. It's an opportunity for us to work with them, uh, to another layer to try to solve this problem. And I mean, people can call it what they want, but it's a, it's one. Like I said, I'm not saying this is going to be the the silver bullet here, um, but it should be something we should explore. It it has had great success in municipalities like Oshawa, uh, so why not try something? you know, a little bit different. And it's just one more small tool in our toolkit that we can use. What what have you heard? Now, Every, every I'm sure that every councillor who sits around the table who has a position on this will say that their position is what their constituents are telling them. Uh, would it be a fair assumption that you're going to say that your constituents have been saying, we don't want encampments in our parks and next to our homes and everything else? Oh, Scott, I like I, I can't even tell you how many people have reached out to me uh, since this report came out uh, last week. Uh, it's been just nonstop phone calls, emails, um, people reaching out on social media, uh, bumping into neighbors even. And it's the, the general consensus. There's no, I haven't had one person say to me that having homeless people in our parks is acceptable. Not one person has said that to me. Everybody is just... Um, beside themselves over this it's 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 so inappropriate um the uh, the residents here in ward five won't stand for it and and clearly on council a lot of other councillors are hearing this as well this is a city-wide issue this isn't low this isn't just a downtown issue and now go downtown you see a lot of these encampments um there's 1500 homeless people um and if we we broke it up into this uh this group that they're talking about doing it you know five to a ten or five tenth clusters i mean you're talking about 300 encampments in Hamilton. I, 
it's it's just it it doesn't make sense to me and um the people in ward five at least and, and i'm sure throughout the city are, are feeling the same way that it's it's inappropriate to have these clusters of of encampments near our playground matt i only have 20 seconds so i apologize it's gonna have to be a very short answer but homelessness is not going to go away are you in support of the idea of large clusters where they can be all put together and where they can be helped with toilets and everything else and monitored and given services. Is that something you would support? I'm, I'm willing to listen to anything that will help this. Let's help move this forward and try to find solutions. But I'm always going to stand for an enforcement-based approach. That's going to be my number one preference on this issue. That is Matt Francis, Ward 5 Councillor, uh, talking about yesterday's marathon meeting about encampments. Matt, thank you for the time today. really appreciate thank you, it. Thank Scott. All right. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you have a flight booked on WestJet tomorrow, uh, you might want to be checking online with some regularity to find out what's going on because pilots are slated to walk off the job take uh, on a strike tomorrow morning, early tomorrow morning, essentially, you know, midnight, basically. They are going to be taking strike action unless there is an agreement. But according to the union and the company, uh, things are miles apart. So WestJet and its subsidiary Swoop look like they're heading for a strike. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business to, uh, to chat about this. Marvin, how are you this morning? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be here. Do, do you ever sleep, by the way? This is, uh, <laughs> this is I don't know, I'll leave that alone. Uh, so let me ask about this because, I mean, look, we, we know people have been... Um, wanting to catch up on their revenues, their incomes after a few years of tough times and all the rest. So, you know, on the one hand, I kind of get why the pilots are looking for more money here. I want to just leave that alone for a minute because we all understand people wanting more money. I want to talk about the industry because the airline industry since COVID has not made a whole lot of its customers happy. Uh, anyone who's had to fly out, I've gone out of Pearson a couple times, not a pleasant experience, flights canceled, flights delayed, slow lines, everything else. This seems like it's only going to hurt the industry more if all of a sudden you've got another strike and more flights canceled. Well, I I certainly agree with that. Uh, I'm not sure who, if anybody could be a winner in all of this. Uh, you asked about a strike idea that you might also see what's known as a lockout. And the reason here is that WestJet doesn't want to be in a situation where a flight has left Toronto, let's say, and gone to a Caribbean island, and then suddenly the pilot walks out there. Ah. Uh, so they are going to try to make as much as possible all the planes come back to some place in Canada so that they can be maintained and be ready to go rather than stuck in destinations around the world. So again, the problem is today, let's suppose your WestJet flight is not canceled and they take you to some wonderful destination in Mexico, and you've got, you're starting a week-long vacation, that's great, enjoy yourself, but now the worry would be, is there going to be a plane to pick you up in a week's time and bring you back home? And so that uncertainty being injected uh, at a time that more people seem to want to fly than ever, we're all, as citizens, tired of being locked down, we wanted to get out and flex our travel muscles, well, <clears throat> having this uncertainty Yes, it's a big problem. And again, to put a fine point on it, WestJet Airlines, WestJet Airlines has not made a profit since 2019. So they would certainly argue 2020, 21, 22, COVID, tough years. 
They were looking for this to be a good bounce back year, and now you have the strike. Could this, Would this only be WestJet and Swoop affected? The reason I ask this is because I'm reading this, that the uh, on Wednesday the Airline Pilots Association merged with the Air Canada Pilots Association. So now you have the two biggest flight crew labor groups operating under one roof. Any chance that other airlines don't cancel, they're not going to cancel, they wouldn't be allowed to, that would be, probably be illegal, but slow things down or do something to show solidarity with WestJet's pilots? No, because these are two separate contracts. So uh, even though they have merged as a union, this is a bit like when Unifor was created a few years ago. You had the Auto Workers Union and some other unions come together. One, one contract does not get affected by what's going on in the other contract. And I suspect you are going to see the sister airlines, this is the corporate side, not the union side, maybe step up and have some additional flights. Already, Flair Airlines has announced that it's going to have some additional flights over the next little while. I suspect Air Canada might run some of them on routes that WestJet had been serving, again, to try to give consumers an alternative. But it is going to be a messy situation. And, and I know you didn't necessarily want to start, brother, but to go back, the two sides are so far apart on the key thing here, which is wages. Uh, we, we're not sure what the union is asking for, but they would like to get better parity, not with Air Canada pilots, but with another uh, airline they have an affiliation with, Delta. Those pilots received a 34%, 34% pay increase over four years in March of this year. And uh, WestJet pilots say, hey, if it was good for them in the States, we'd like to get the same thing here. That, I don't know what the um, company has offered, but it's not 34% over four years. Well, no, and, and reports say, and again, we'll, we'll take all this with, we'll wait to hear, but reports say that WestJet wide-body pilots, if they get what they want, would be making 350000 a year, and narrow-body captains would make 300000 This is one of the things that always makes these things interesting, because you get a lot of people who support <coughs> the unions and would say, oh, I'm with the workers, but, you know... They're with the workers, but they're also, there's a lot of suspicion towards the rich these days. And I would say $350,000 puts you into the rich category. Where do the, where do the supporters of unions fall on this one when you're talking about dollars this big? Right. So, uh, they would certainly, if you got paid $350,000 a year, you'd be in the top 1% of all Canadian earners. Now that, again, that comment you made isn't what the pilots are seeking. That's actually what WestJet offered. Uh, so if, if their deal, if the WestJet offer was accepted, the wide body pilots get 350, the narrow body pilots get 300,000. And from what I understand, that's not good enough. They want more. Now there are other issues. There are issues around seniority, <clears throat> presumably seniority get to have a better pick of the flights that they're taking. Uh, also around scheduling, people don't want to have too many flights back to back and so on and so forth. And those aren't trivial issues, but it seems the way everyone's talking about it, that once compensation is sorted out, the others will come together very quickly. I don't know how fast this will be settled. Clearly, the federal government has an interest in this because disrupting passengers is not a happy thing. They don't want to see it uh, upsetting places like Pearson. You mentioned that and the other international airports. So uh, there's going to be a lot of people talking about this, but I just don't get a feeling that this is going to be a strike that will be settled in 24 hours. This could be a significant lockdown strike action could go on for a week or more. That is Marvin Ryder with the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, always appreciate you doing this, Marvin. Thanks for getting up so early.
Happy to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The uh, federal government is proposing some changes to our bail system that would make it more difficult for some people charged with certain types of crimes to be released on bail. If you are charged with serious offenses, weapons, with certain maximum jail periods, if you are convicted, uh, you will now, under this bill, assuming it passes, you will be facing reverse onus. You, rather than having the essentially the benefit of the doubt that you should get out, you will have to prove why you should be out on bail which would make it more difficult. The idea behind this is, I think, obvious. It's to make things safer. Question is, will it make things safer? Uh, Shahir Rahim is the Director of Criminal Justice with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Joins us now. Shahir, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, let's go right to the big question. Uh, will this make things safer? So the view of the CCLA is that this is going to make bail more difficult to get, as you alluded to, but it's not actually going to make people safer. And the reason for that is it does not address the underlying drivers of crime and public safety risks that presently exist across Canada today. Issues like support for mental health, social services, and housing Contrary to what many people might perceive, bail has become more and more difficult to attain in Canada over the last four decades. Uh, The population, for example, of people who are denied bail has increased by 400% over the past four decades. And so bail is already difficult to obtain, including for those who are charged with violent offenses, as you alluded to in your opening remarks. And that's why we don't think that making bail even more difficult to obtain is the answer to address public safety concerns. Uh, you, uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association put out a statement, um, I'm trying to see when this was, oh, yesterday it came out. And there's a number of things there, but one line I want to ask you about in particular, uh, it says over two-thirds of people held in provincial and territorial jails are not convicted of a crime. I just want to understand what that means. Are you Is that meaning over two-thirds of the people have not yet been convicted of a crime? They are in jail because they are awaiting to have a trial? Or are you saying over two-thirds of people held in provincial and territorial jails, even after trial, are found to be not guilty and therefore they've been held without reason? So that specific statistic refers to those who are awaiting trial. So they, that's not speaking specifically to the outcome of their okay, charge. Okay. But what I, what I can say to that uh, question is that, roughly speaking, about half of the people charged with a criminal offense in Canada are not ultimately found guilty of that offense. So even if you're charged with a criminal offense, there's a 50-50 chance, if you will, that you are found ultimately not guilty of it. You, I know you are um, very aware that uh, there have been some very high-profile cases, including one um, with an OPP officer who was killed and the person charged was out on bail at the time and had some offenses on their background. And that is, I mean, certainly one of the drivers behind this that the public, I think in a lot of cases says, how is this possible that this could have happened? What do you answer to that? Because I understand certainly that there are cases where 
nothing bad happens when someone gets out on bail. There are other cases where something like this happens and the public says we need to have something changed. What do you say to the public with that? I think it's legitimate to want to do better. And there are solutions that we can implement to address those individual incidents where somebody was out on bail and an offense was committed. So, for example, one of the interventions that the CCLA supports is more funding for bail supervision and monitoring programs. These are programs that are run by organizations to allow for uh, better support systems and structures within the community if someone is let out on bail. Uh, So, for instance, that could involve them reporting to an organization, there being more structured involvement when they are out. So our position is not that there is no way to make bail more effective when it is granted, but it is that this type of response that would wholesale restrict bail further when it's already difficult to obtain uh, is not the answer. There are also, and I I don't know if it's controversial, Um, some people would say yes, some people would say no, there are also in the bail uh, rules right now, there are, um, help me with the proper wording here. If you are in a disadvantage or a minority group necessarily, you are more, they're supposed to give more weight to letting you out on bail, as I understand it. Is, is that one of the, is that working right now that if you are an indigenous person or a black person or some other groups that are specifically identified that there is supposed to be, as I understand it, more willingness or or, uh, unless there's some really compelling reason why not, we don't want to just hold these people. Does that work? It does not work. In fact, quite to the contrary, um, members of groups like the Black community and the Indigenous community are grossly overrepresented in what we call pretrial detention, that is to say people who are denied bail. I believe the number is close to, for example, in Manitoba, uh, nearly 80% of individuals in pretrial detention come from a marginalized uh, background. But I will also say this, there is no law or uh, case that states that if you are from a, a marginalized or disadvantaged background, that you should have a higher chance of getting out on bail. In fact, the CCLA has conducted research, including a 2014 report called Set Up to Fail, that found that because the bail system requires you to have strong supports in the community or ties to the community in order to receive release, in fact, it's people from disadvantaged and marginalized backgrounds who are far less likely to receive bail. That's how we support things like the bail supervision and uh, monitoring program. Mm. Because what those programs do is it means that if somebody has those characteristics where they don't have community ties, they can be released and supported by organizations. It's not a blank check. It means we still want there to be supervision and monitoring. We want it to be an effective intervention that doesn't create unequal outcomes for those communities. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think anybody uh, here, I don't think anyone is thinking, no matter what side they're on on this, I don't think anyone is thinking this is an easy thing. It's an incredibly complicated thing. And I'm, I'm assuming you would agree that every time there is one of those cases, like the OPP officer who was killed, it just exacerbates the complication level of this thing and muddies it even more and makes it more difficult to sort out. I think that's fair to say. And I think that, you know, one of the most compelling calls uh, that we heard, in my opinion, 
was the mother of the boy who was tragically killed at a subway station in Toronto. Mm. And what she said, you know, even through her grief, is she said, I want people to sit down and really think about what are the meaningful solutions and investments that are needed to this issue. It's always easy to look at a statute book and say, let's make this one change and call it a day. Hmm. And I fear that that's the approach that we're taking to what is actually, as you rightfully know, a complex issue that requires everyone from different levels of government to come together and figure out what the real solutions are. And that's what we're calling for. We can say, let's be tough on crime and close the book. But is that actually going to work? We want there to be solutions that are actually going to work to reduce these incidents. Shahir Rahim, uh, Director of Criminal Justice for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, very much appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk beer. I mean, it's the time of day to talk beer, right? Who isn't talking beer at this time of the day? <laughs> uh, this is an interesting time for breweries especially microbreweries, smaller breweries in this province, because all of a sudden there's a whole lot of stuff going on, a lot of choices, a lot of options, a lot of changes that are taking place. Uh, John Romano is owner of Nickelbrook Brewery in Burlington, joins us now. John, thanks for doing this today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, You guys, and I mean you guys meaning all the non-gigantic brewers in this province are facing some interesting times. There are a lot of things that are going on, whether it's more microbreweries popping up or people's changing taste. So this is, this is a move of like a really moving floor for you guys, isn't it? The, the, the market is really changing. Oh, it's odd. Like the first year of COVID, um, we probably had one of the better years ever, you know, sales were kind of flat, but you know, we weren't doing less, uh, we were doing less work in the promotion side and, and, you know, there was less giveaways going on. You weren't buying the glassware, the tap handles and all that because the bars were closed and online sales were uh, good and retail was, was, was doing well. And then all of a sudden people were like waking up going, Oh my God, I've gained too much weight. Oh my <laughs> God, I feel bloated. Oh my God. I've seen the price of, of my broccoli. Have you seen the price? Uh, of romaine lettuce this is crazy you know and so all of a sudden inflation kicks in and inflation has been even tougher never mind for groceries uh when it comes to dry goods and, and raw materials from the brewing industry i wish i was seeing five ten percent increase cans went up 30 percent can lids went up 30 percent you couldn't get corrugated almost a year and a half ago everybody with this online Purchasing put a huge amount of pressure on the corrugated world. And little guys like me had contracts, but our contracts didn't have penalties. I said to my wife, if I see one line, one more online order coming to our front door, I'm going to lose my mind because it's a box in the box and it's uh, some cardboard that could have made me beer boxes, which I couldn't get at the time. So now you're paying double for your corrugated, you know, so it was just one thing after another. And, um, you know, the younger demographics, I think, you know, people like 40 plus, they're still drinking beer and things are kind of normal. They may be drinking a little bit less. They're, they're watching their dollar when they're doing their groceries and stuff. But, you know, that 19-year-old entry-level, you know, alcohol beverage drinker isn't all good. They're not all going to beer. When I turned 19, the first thing I did was I bought a case of Molson Canadian. I grew up, you know, watching Hockey Night in Canada and 
we'd grab a case of beer and play road hockey, and I'd pretend I was Daryl Sittler, you know, and, and, and that, that's how we grew up. Now, these kids are on computers, they're on their phones, and, and they're worried about their, their carb intake and their sugar intake, and, and cannabis has put a play on alcohol as well, right? Well, I was wondering about that because it's, it's, it's cannabis, I'm sure has factored into this as well as it seems as though almost every day or every week we hear about some new microbrewery or smaller brewer that is opening up that adds more and more options to the market, which is going to, I would assume, spread out the, the buying that people do. It's, it's got to be more and more difficult for people like you who are trying to find your, to keep your market, find your market, build your brand. Yeah, it's definitely saturated. Uh, I think Glass Count is over 500 breweries in the province. and Really? It, it's definitely, wow. oh, for sure. Bricks and mortar, I think we're up to 350. And then there's a lot of contract. There's a lot of brands that, you know, are, are basically working out of an office and they're marketing companies, right? Um, but it's saturated. I don't think um, they're all going to make it. It's going to be, I think, some very interesting times. You know, you got the beer store contract coming up. That's going to be you know, a, a big variable. You've got push to put beer in convenience store and convenience stores. And, you know, that's good and bad. If it's only craft, it's great. If we got to play up against the, the big boys, it's, it's going to get difficult for little guys to get into convenience store. Yeah, they'll maybe get into the store in their in their little hometown, but there, there's 9,800 convenience stores in the province of Ontario. Like, that gets pretty intricate and, and can get pretty complicated. So John, how do you stand out then? I mean, if someone, I, I assume that if someone has tried your beer or, or frankly, many of the other craft beer makers or smaller breweries, uh, you can point to the quality, you can point to the taste. People say, oh, I really like this, but you still, you have to get someone to try it first. So how do you do that? How do you get people to say, I'm going to pick so up one of his? We're back to the festivals and all that, like COVID kind of stopped that. So we're, we, it's, it's liquid to lips, right? So you're, you're doing festivals, uh, um, you're doing food shows, rib fests, uh, music festivals. You're just trying to get your, your name out there, your tap rooms. Uh, you know, we have two tap rooms. They're uh, a good angle to get people in. We do different activities to draw attention and generate traffic. And, and Be anywhere. Get, like I said, liquid to lips, right? So Be anywhere, yeah. Yeah, the festivals are back on. Every weekend we'll be somewhere. Some weekends um, we'll be in two places. Uh, we've already had to start saying no because uh, we're, we're booked. You know, we only have so many bodies and so much equipment, right? So It is, uh, I, I imagine that it is, uh, with all the things going on, that it is a challenge for sure. Uh, John Romano, uh, President, Co-Founder, Nickelbrook Brewery. Uh, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for calling us. Have a great day. It is, uh, it is a challenging business. I don't think there's any doubt about that one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. And now for your second favorite part of the show, where we talk about the federal debt. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Uh, this is, though, a fascinating look into some things and talk about money. Uh, there was a Commons Finance Committee hearing on Tuesday and Christopher Freeland, the Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, appeared and she was asked by a Conservative MP, how much money is the government going to be spending to service the federal debt this year? In other words, if you have a mortgage, how much is your interest payment? How much are we simply taking and flushing down the toilet to pay for the debt? 
Christopher Freeland was disinclined to answer the question would be the kind way of saying it. He was, he asked her four times this MP and, uh, she continued to not answer the question, but say, well, context is really important while not answering the question and then referred to it as fine as fiscal fear mongering while trying to offer context while never actually giving a number. Uh, for the record, the number is $43.9 billion we are flushing down the toilet this year. $46 billion next year, $46.6 billion in 2025, and $48.3 billion in 2026, and $50.3 billion in 2027. That is a lot of flushing. Franco Terrazano is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Joins me now. Franco, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, any surprise that when the numbers are this big and we're talking about this much money just being squandered, that Christopher Freeland might not want to answer it and give a sound clip for the next election? Well, yes and no, right? Like, um, in one in one way, it's surprising because it's in her own budget that she just tabled, what, like a month and a half, two months ago. So everyone, everyone can find it. Of course, there's going to be the media reporting on it. And just as you did, the number is there for everyone to see. $44 billion this year just to cover the interest charges on the government credit card, jumping up to $50 billion, right? None of us are getting any services for that, right? That's $44 billion that can't go to healthcare, can't go to improving uh, roads or infrastructure, can't stay in our pockets through lower taxes because that money's going to the bond fund managers. Now, she says she wants to talk about contact. Let me put that into context this year. $44 billion on interest charges. Well, guess what? The deficit this year... It's $40 billion. So we're essentially borrowing money to pay the interest charges on the debt. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that anybody who looks at these numbers and we know that we're going to have debt and not all debt is bad. And we know that we came through COVID and we had to pay things to help people. All those things that there's to some degree, there is explanation, but I look at this and to me, refusing to answer a question that yeah. is already publicly available tells me they don't, they know that this is going to play poorly if people hear the numbers coming from her mouth. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And it should pay, it should, it should be poorly uh, received by Canadians because like, I think many Canadians understand that we went through a pandemic, but let me just provide some more context in here with the numbers. The federal government was spending all time highs even before the pandemic. So even accounting for inflation and population growth, the federal government was spending more money in 2018 than the federal government did during any single year during World War II, right? So that's astonishing. Then we have a pandemic happen. And what should have happened is the government should have reprioritized some resources to deal with the problem at hand. It didn't do that. It just sent buckets of cash out the door as fast as it could. Even the Auditor General noted $32 billion plus in ineligible or questionable subsidies that went out the door, $32 billion. Now the CRA is essentially throwing up its hands and saying, well, we can't be bothered to fully investigate that potential waste. So we haven't seen a single shred of evidence that this government has ever cared about fiscal responsibility, that it's ever cared about balancing the budget, and that it's ever cared about helping taxpayers. We haven't seen any evidence to suggest that. No, um, and again, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to, though, the 
the issue of just the money that is spent to cover the, yes. me, to pay the interest. Because if you are, um, if you're someone who is talking about, well, we need the government, let, let, let's say, for example, and there are people listening and that's totally fine. Let's say you are a supporter of the NDP's position that we want to have fully covered dental care, fully covered pharmacare, fully covered this and that. All of those things and more could be covered just by the amount that we are going to take to pay our interest that we are going to basically throw away. All those things, probably two or three times over every year, could be covered by this. This is wasted money. Let me just make two points, right, to address that uh, position that maybe some people have. So to your point, it is wasted money. $44 billion on interest charges this year. Well, you know how much money the government, the federal government is spending on health care transfers? No. $49 billion. So all of our health care basically is flushed down the toilet, the equivalent. Uh, Yes, uh, very, very close to that. And what the federal government is spending, let me just say that one more time, $44 billion on debt interest payments, $49 billion on federal health care transfers. Okay, folks, so that's point number one. To your point, this is money that's, that's being paid on interest that can't improve services or lower taxes. But number two, who's getting that money? Well, right? It's not, it's not, no, it's not, it's not it's the not, people who are struggling the most. And it's not helping it's the, anybody. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's the bond fund managers, whether it's on Bay Street or other financial institutions. Yeah, we got Franco, we got to run, unfortunately, but you're, I mean, your point is absolutely right. And it's just when people hear the number, this is why Krista Freeland doesn't want a, I think, a sound bite coming out of her mouth that can be used. It, it's not good. Franco Terrazano, uh, the uh, manager of the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for this, Franco. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The four final bids that we believe anyway for the Ottawa Senators franchise are in. And one of them, according to the Hockey News, the leading contender is Michael Andlauer of Hamilton, Burlington, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, now the Brantford Bulldogs. I want to bring in Ryan Kennedy from the Hockey News to chat about this. Ryan, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you doing this. One of the mysteries, and I don't know that there's an answer to this. We read that Michael Landlauer is the leading contender or the, you know, the leader in this. Do we have any real idea if he's the leader or if we, do we just know that his bid is good and that he is well liked by the NHL and that makes him the leading contender? Yeah. I mean, there's certain, there's certainly rumblings that, that he's in the lead and, I think, you know, his reputation with the NHL is is pretty good. And, you know, you look at he does have experience, um, you know, having part ownership of the Montreal Canadiens. And I think he's he's been seen as a as a good steward by the league and and somebody that they would like to be in business with full time, if you will. You know, he's the type of guy that that could take over a Canadian franchise and and deliver success there. So I think there's there's a level of trust between the league and and Lauer and uh you know he certainly has the the finances. So I, I think that's why we're seeing him uh sort of rise to the top, even though we don't have final word as of yet. How much do you think now the NHL over the years, I mean they've had really good owners. They've also had some owners that have um Oh, what's the nice way of describing it? Giving them some aneurysms? <laughs> yep. How important do you think it is for the NHL, to Gary Bettman and to the NHL and to the Board of Governors, 
to know the person who they're going to sell a team to, to know the person is going to, you presume anyway, behave in a way that they like. I think it's very important. And, you know, especially with a market where, you know, things have been uh, kind of depressed in Ottawa for years now, attendance is way down. Uh, it's a Canadian franchise and, and obviously has a lot of potential both on and off the ice. You know, to bring in somebody that you trust, uh, I, I think is paramount to the NHL in this particular situation. You know, they have their pick, right? You know, there, there was numerous interested parties, uh, some Canadian, some not, but in Andlauer, you have a, you have a known quantity. And, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, with Montreal, um, you know, he, he gets a, a lot of marks for how he's handled himself in that market. Uh, although he's, you know, more of a behind the scenes guy there. And, you know, for Ottawa, it's a, it's a great opportunity for somebody to, uh, to really revitalize a franchise that, as I said, particularly on the ice is, is on the ascent. And, you know, you don't want to make mistakes. And I, I feel with, with Ann Lauer, he's a pretty safe choice. I'm not sure where Ottawa is in the pecking order of smallest NHL markets. I know Winnipeg would be down there. Uh, Ottawa would be closer to the bottom than the top. Do, do you really believe the potential really exists to do a lot? I mean, I suppose there's the, the the real estate move if you get new arena, but is this a franchise that has potential to be way bigger than it really is already? Maybe not way bigger, but I think it's the type of franchise that, you know, they certainly should be selling out their building. And, you know, even though they are kind of wedged in between massive fan bases being the Habs and the Leafs, uh, and they don't have the, you know, the, the same history, it still is a Canadian market. And, you know, Ottawa is a, a decent sized city. Uh, a little bit transient just because of, you know, the fact that politics is, is so dominant there. But, you know, th- this is a, a franchise that recently has underperformed uh, off the ice. And mm-hmm. I, I think new ownership would go a long way in improving that. Uh, I think fans want to return. They just need a reason. And I think, you know, uh, a stable owner and a better product on the ice will go a long way in doing that. And, Yes, a new arena that's not kind of in the middle of nowhere would certainly help as well. Yeah, well, ask Arizona about that. Uh, the different discussion for for today, perhaps. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think you've just touched on though the real challenge Ottawa will always have. You can't move to a different city, and you're squeezed between Toronto and Montreal. That's two of the probably the two most passionate and biggest fan bases. That's a tough sort of niche to try and carve your way into. That's always going to be the challenge. It certainly will be. And, you know, you mentioned Winnipeg as being one of the smaller markets. So that's, that's probably a good, um, you know, comparable for Ottawa where, you know, you may not have the, the huge fan base, but you can have a dedicated fan base that sells out the building every night. And, you know, I do think it, it probably helps that, you know, Toronto is always kind of the, the bad guy. Yeah, built uh, for in other villain. Canadian cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but just before we go, and, and I just want to one more thing really quickly. Just before we go, and that is, there was so much talk throughout this whole process about the celebrity involvement, Ryan Reynolds and Snoop Dogg, and the weekend. If Mike Landlauer is indeed the leader in this race towards buying it, 
it does seem kind of odd that with all the talk about famous people that he was one of the groups, one of the few groups, I guess, that didn't have a celebrity attached. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, it's it's fun to throw those names around. And I'm, and I'm sure all those folks had, you know, serious aspirations. But for the NHL, it's especially when you're going through an ownership change and, and going through this bidding process, they don't like people coming out and being public. Uh, this is something that has gone back years uh, and people in Hamilton remember Jim Belsilly. Oh, yeah. Um, that was something that <laughs> the NHL hated. Uh, the fact that he was so upfront about his intentions. Um, I think there's there's probably the possibility that maybe one of these celebrities, uh, Ryan Reynolds in particular, may just kind of hook up with the winner uh, at the end. Um, I, I think there was probably some bad messaging early on with him uh, being attached to the Remington group. Uh, I'm not sure how true that actually was uh, or how ironclad that was. But, you know, it it's fun to get the big names out there, but at the end of the day, it's the people with the billions. Yeah. At the end the of the day, the big names are the ones on the bills that you're interested in. If you're the NHL, uh, yes. that is Ryan Kennedy. By the way, Ryan, as soon as you mentioned Jim Balsley in the Hamilton bid, you just sent half of this city into the fetal position. So uh, <laughs> congratulations on doing that this morning. Uh, Ryan Kennedy from the hockey news. Really appreciate the time, Ryan. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.